1: post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When I look back over the last two years, to be honest, it's a bit of a blur. It's mostly lockdown, punctuated by the news, and even that's muddled. Watching the reviews of 2021, it felt like half of the stories from last year had actually happened a lifetime ago, and lots of people seem to say that, which made us wonder, how has living in and out of lockdown changed our ability to remember, and our sense of the passing of time?
2: There's a sort of debate between physicists and theologians and others about the nature of time. Is it linear? Is it circular? Is it... um some combination of the two and I thought it sort of felt a bit more like a pretzel really it sort of keeps looping back on itself
1: How has this period of relative isolation affected us and what impact might it have in the future In a special essay the Sunday Times correspondent Josh Glancy spoke to experts about the impact on our mental health our collective memory and how this period might be affecting children's development
2: Children born in the pandemic are showing, at least initially, that they have on average a lower IQ because they're getting less exposure to all the things that help a child interpret the world.
1: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how Covid reset our minds.
2: I think 2021 for me was better. There's no question it was better, in terms of the pandemic at least, because we got our vaccinations. I got mine in, what was it, April. And I was able to travel and fly again. There were holidays. I saw my parents a lot.
1: That's Josh Glancy, the Sunday Times special correspondent.
2: There were quite large aspects of the year that were quite normal. I know it doesn't necessarily feel like that now that we're back into sort of the full Omicron wave, etc. But, you know, from really spring all the way through to winter, it was quite a normal year. So thumbs up for 2021 on the whole, (laughs) all things being relative, but it has ended on a massive downer. And now we're back in this wave. And my feeling about 2021 was, well, 2020 was a year of holy crap. What the hell has just happened? Shock, really. Shock and awe. 2021 was uh, mostly getting back to normal, but with a big dollop of meh, you know, a sense of mutedness, a sense of languishing, a sense of not quite reaching back to normality as we remember it, still being fearful of new variants, the country creaking at the hinges, all these things not working well as a result of the pandemic and partly as a result of Brexit too, and just a sense that life was just a bit worse, just a bit worse than usual, 10, 20 percent, hard to put a number on it, but there was just a sort of low-level malaise that I felt fell over the country and, and my own life at times.
1: And you're so right. As the, the shock and horror of 2020 sort of faded slightly, it kind of made the early lockdown even harder to get through. It felt like that one really dragged at the start of 2021.
2: Yes, it really did. It really did. I think that those are some of the lowest moments in my lifetime as a collective society. I hardly know anyone who wasn't quite materially affected at that time in terms of their mental health in terms of their relations, in terms of their schedule, routines. I'm just talking about the people who didn't feel terribly ill and obviously many people lost someone and so forth. So I think it was really a nadir in some ways because the vaccination still felt out of reach for most people. And, uh, you know, it was just bleak. It was the darkest of midwinters, really. And as bad as this winter wait, may may get, is getting, I hope we'll never quite... That place
1: again. Here's hoping, and you're right. You know, looking back over the pandemic, a lot of people will have lost loved ones. Uh, a lot of people will have lost friends or family to COVID. Uh, you know, an even bigger number of people will have lost sort of a sense of a part of their life, a chunk of life that they will never be able to to live as they would have wanted to. For you, I mean, looking back, you've you've written this beautiful essay in the Sunday Times. And I know it sort of, it went through a, a number of drafts. Tell me, looking back, I mean, has your thinking about how the last year went, has it changed?
2: Well, you know, it's really interesting. We began talking about how we were going to remember the pandemic almost as it started. And I remember essays back in April 2020 of looking back at the Spanish flu and other pandemics and actually they're not very well remembered. I mean, the Black Death certainly is, but hardly anyone wrote anything about the Spanish flu. There were very few great books or pieces of art or film about the Spanish flu. It was basically memory hole. Mm, That's true. So we were having this discussion all the way back then, and it's kind of continued about what happens to this time, how we will remember it, and what it will represent to us in the future. Unfortunately, trying to write a magazine essay five weeks in advance during a pandemic about what's going on and how we will think about it is quite a challenging process. The Omicron variant hit when I was about halfway through my second draft and so uh. <laughs> it went through several revisions of trying to work out just how bad this was going to be we ended up trying to zoom out really and take a big picture look at what this pandemic will mean to us perhaps in five ten years time and also to address this issue of which keeps coming up I'm sure it's happened to you too in, in conversations again and again people say oh was that a year ago or was it a month ago, or I can't even remember anymore, <laughs> you know, and people say, Oh, time seems to have warped in ways that are quite unusual. It feels like if you think back to those well, do you remember the Italians singing to each other across the balconies in, in Lombardy or whatever?
0: Viva la nostra cena. Viva-
1: That feels like a lifetime ago A
2: lifetime ago, and yet also it's kind of gone by in a bit of a flash because we're waiting for it to be over. It's kind of flashed by as as this kind of strange, unique moment in history and yet also seems to have gone on forever. So something very strange has happened to our perceptions of time and we wanted to have a proper look at that, really.
1: And Josh, you mentioned, and you're right, this is a conversation I've had with so many people where it does feel like for the past two years, really, time has stretched and shrunk and contorted and done very weird things. How have you experienced that?
2: I compared it to a pretzel, really. There's a sort of debate between physicists and theologians and others about the nature of time. Is it linear? Is it circular? Is it um, some combination of the two? And I thought it sort of felt a bit more like a pretzel, really. It sort of keeps (laughs) looping back on itself, like one of those sort of bad Christopher Nolan movies. And The thing that really strikes me is I think about my year 2021 started with really with the January 6th insurrection in Washington DC. That really kicked off my year. I was still in Washington then reporting on all that. And I can't believe that was the same year as it is now. It just makes no sense to me. But it is. And my usual reference points in time just seem to be completely washed away. And I also get this kind of particularly during more lockdown-y moments. Like when I'm talking to you, I mean, it's a Monday, but it could be any other day of the week at this point. I know it's on the weekend, but, you know, it really... It's grey outside, it's getting dark early. My routine has become quite flat again. And so something quite weird has happened to our sense of time. While I was writing this, I called my mum just to wish her a a good weekend. I always call her just before the Sabbath comes in. What a
1: dutiful son. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I do it because I get bored while I'm writing.
1: I'm hoping she's not listening to this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so I was looking for something to, to do. And I called her and I said, oh, have a good Sabbath and a good weekend. She said, Josh, it's Tuesday.
1: Oh, no. <laughs>
2: I realised that I honestly thought it was Friday. I was convinced <laughs> the week had just completely lost its shape for me. And so there we are. That's something very strange has gone on. And so as part of the essay, I tried to talk to some psychologists and people who are experts in how the brain and memory functions to get a handle on what that might be. I
1: mean, I'm fascinated by this. I think we've all felt it where uh, I guess the days are just so samey. For me, I get those terrible end of year photo compilations from, made by Google oh, God, or, yeah. or whoever. And it just, it's less of a kaleidoscope <laughs> than normal. It is all quite samey. And I think that makes it harder to track time. I mean, what did the experts tell you? I mean, uh, I know you spoke to the the delightfully named Duke Han, who's a a professor of psychology at the University of Southern California. What was his line on it?
2: Well, I I think the kaleidoscope point is, is quite a good metaphor for it, actually. Duke Han pointed out that basically, we don't experience time as a continuous record of what's happening. We actually forget a vast percentage of what happens to us. But we remember it as a series of discrete episodes and events. So things happen that matter for whatever reason. And the memory kind of sears itself onto our brain. Our hippocampus lights up. And these were moments of great elation, moments of great sadness, of joy, of danger. We tend to remember those and other things, so some less explicable. But obviously what's happened, particularly during lockdown, but even away from lockdown in this kind of slightly more muted routine that a lot of us have found ourselves in the brain has not had, I compare it to, to the coat hooks, if you like, it hasn't had those kind of coat hook memories, which you can use to string your life together, really, or far fewer of them, I would say. And so you do, it does end up in this kind of blur. And therefore, it's harder for you to pick out what happened when and, or even what happened, frankly, you know, there are whole chunks of the last two years that are quite flat and empty of these moments. I mean, you think, you tend to remember parties on the whole. Maybe not everything you said. Hopefully not everything you said. <laughs> but um,
1: That would be unforgivable.
2: <laughs> but you will remember a party because it is an explosion of sensory and social data. Yes. And you see people, you meet new people, you see new places, you try new drinks or food or whatever it is, and these things help you remember. Well, I don't know how many parties you've been to in the last two years.
1: Not enough. Yeah,
2: <laughs> not enough. So... In a way, it's not that surprising that we we don't have as many of these memories. And therefore, the whole mass of the pandemic, two years, like I suppose we can call it now, looks very different to our brains.
1: Now, you're right. Normally, time, I suppose, is punctuated by events and people and without any of that to trigger our noticing time passing. I mean, I sort of found in a way that I confess I've never really noticed before or not in such a, an important way. I became obsessed with seasons. So I would sort of just watch for the blossom trees. And as soon as they were sort of fading and I was getting slightly miserable about it, the wisteria would pop up and I'd, I, all was well again. Uh, and then we were almost into summer. But normally that stuff wouldn't register. For the last two years, I've been slightly obsessed.
2: Well, Daisy Fancourt, who's a psychobiologist at UCL that I spoke to, actually said explicitly, our craving for novelty is biologically inbuilt. We want to see new things. Uh, and she compared lockdown to a bit like being in prison or in space, on a spaceship or on a, a submarine. You don't get that kind of sensory uh, data. You're deprived. So it's not surprising that, you, you know, you might be looking out the window or walking along the, the street and suddenly observing the blossom, the changing of the leaves, maybe partly because other things in your life have slowed down, but it might also be the case that your brain is just looking for novelty, for change, because you're not getting that much of it in your day-to-day life.
1: That does make sense. We're all talking about how it's affected us in, you know, big and small ways, but what about children?
2: Unfortunately, we're starting to get a bit of a sense of it, and it doesn't look great. I mean, the chief Ofsted inspector, Amanda Spielman, said that loneliness, boredom and misery have become endemic among the young. And there's also uh, some troubling studies coming out of Rhode Island and in America showing that children born during the pandemic score lower on measures of verbal, motor and cognitive ability overall. Really? Now, obviously, these are quite initial studies and, and we don't know. And, and it may well be that those those children will correct those deficiencies later in life. But it is showing that actually children born in the pandemic are showing, at least initially, that they have on average a lower IQ because they're getting less exposure to all the things that help a child interpret the world, understand the world. And so it's pretty troubling stuff. And, and actually, what the more one looks at this kind of thing, the more one realises that we are going to be paying the price for the decisions we've made in the last two years for quite a long time, some more than others, of course. But in our understandable fear and panic in the face of this new virus, we've taken some pretty drastic decisions about how to live and we will pay prices for them that we didn't necessarily anticipate at the time.
1: That is terrifying, thinking of the lasting impact this could have. How do you think we'll look back and and rationalise it almost? I mean, I was really interested, you spoke to a, a political philosopher about the idea that normally when you have such a big disruptive event, there's a sense of narrative around it. Is that easy to find with a pandemic?
2: <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I don't think it is. I mean... The great author Karen blixen once said that human beings can bear almost any sorrow if they have a story to tell about it or can put it into a story. It's difficult to tell a story about the pandemic. It really is. It's a virus. It's unglamorous. It's unheroic. For most of us, not all, our experience has been basically staying at home a lot and being quite bored, which isn't a particularly interesting story to tell. Obviously, there have been heroes, people on the front line doing heroic work. But generally, there's a banality to this virus and to this pandemic that makes it far less interesting than a war or a revolution. And you think then that it's maybe not a surprise that there aren't great stories told about the Spanish flu that came in 1918-19, just after the First World War. I Think how many First World War stories we tell, the poetry and the, the books that are written about it. But I don't think there will be a a Dr Zhivago written about the pandemic or an All Quiet on the Western Front or a Bird Song because most of us just sat at home and watched Netflix and ordered takeout. Not all, but or some people went out and drove a bus or a tube and, and, and that was more impressive, but it still doesn't exactly uh, make for grand historical narrative. So I think that's one of the hardest things about the pandemic in terms of finding meaning in it. I don't know if we'll have COVID museums and great COVID art. There was great AIDS art. I mean, there has been, you think of, sort of like a play like Angels in America or The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollinghurst, and you think, well, actually, there are wonderful, amazing stories that have been told about the AIDS pandemic. But I think that was partly because it happened to a particular community in a particular way. Unfortunately, I think the pandemic has happened to all of us in almost the same way, and therefore it's quite hard to distinguish it's kind of universal and therefore not that interesting in some ways. But I hope there will be a kind of cultural flourishing at some point. I don't think we've seen one during this period. I don't know if you've ever watched anyone try and make pandemic art or talk about COVID in TV shows and stuff is incredibly dull and I don't know it just lands horribly at the moment maybe because we're still in it all
1: yeah it's too soon too soon too soon (laughs) soon. I'll be there for the retrospective in a decade's time yeah (laughs) yeah until then nobody mentioned the pandemic
2: and I think the smart commissioners now people like who are making Emily in Paris which love it or loathe it is great escapism and very sort of fizzy and fun and they're just not talking about it at all succession did the same thing people don't want to see it at the moment I hope there'll be a great cultural flourishing I hope there will be some of the great parties will happen in the the second half of this decade. I hope that there will be all sorts of strange new literary movements and strange poetry and all sorts of interesting films and plays made. But I don't know. You know, you would hope there would be a great theatrical resurgence. But maybe that's naive too. Maybe we're heading into quite a dark and difficult period of human history.
1: Well, it's interesting your examples with TV and how people want the escapism of not even acknowledging COVID and the pandemic and the way we've all lived, I mean, in a way that kind of explains how things like the Spanish flu get almost written out of history. Nobody wants to talk about it anymore.
2: I think that's right. But then, you know, that didn't happen with the Holocaust or the Second World War or the Western Front. Yeah. So people will want to address this. They will want to find a way to address it. Whether they find a way to do that that's interesting or worthwhile, (laughs) I think remains to be seen. When historians and
0: writers
1: do look back on this period will they see it as a turning point how much have the last two years changed how we'll live in the future we'll have more in just a moment but first I'm Megan Agnew I'm a commissioning editor and writer at the Sunday Times magazine I organise and write interviews with politicians stroppy heartthrob actors who absolutely don't want to be there authors artists and features on a whole range of issues we can only do this thanks to the subscribers of the times and the sunday times subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times
0: when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring
1: After everything we've collectively lived through in the last two years, lockdowns, deaths, a global pandemic, has it changed us, not just as individuals, but as a society? When you have these great disruptions in history, a bit like living through a war, where every single person is affected by it, and normal life is just abandoned for a long period of time, does it make it impossible to go back to how things were? Will whatever comes next have to be the start of a new era?
2: Some people were saying, oh, everything will go back to normal afterwards. People forget pandemics. I don't think that's true. And I think obviously we're now two years into it. And I think it's probably clear that that isn't true. I think fundamental things have changed about our world. I think there is a much greater awareness of fragility both of our fragility within nature, but also of the fragility of the systems we depend on to live, our supply chains and and that sort of thing. I think our lives have become medicalized in a way that won't just recede. And we're much more aware of germs and illness and sanitization. I think that in some ways, things like working from home and our, our relationship to technology and screens and distance has all changed. We won't travel in the same way afterwards. Our relationship to each other and the way we think about space and crowds. I mean, hopefully some of that will recede, but it's definitely shifted. So, I do think that's a big shift. And you know, Ivan Krastev, who you mentioned, a political philosopher who's who's great actually. I would recommend looking him up. But he's argued, and others have that we could see this as the beginning of the twenty first century, which may sound odd because it's it's twenty twenty two, but. Historians always debate when centuries kind of really start and finish. And there's this idea of the long 20th century that goes all the way from kind of 1870 and the steamship to, well, maybe 9-11 or maybe the financial crisis, maybe 2016 if you're British Anglo-American and the great political revolutions of that year. I think you could probably pick 2020 and 2021 and the great pandemic era as a grand collective experience, that will probably be some kind of hinge point in history and it may rank alongside the likes of 1939 and 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. It's obviously too early to tell, but I I wouldn't be surprised if if that's one day how we do look back on it.
1: And looking back at those big hinge moments, you know, whether it is the 1870s with industrialisation suddenly really taking a leap forward or whether it's the, the world wars, at the end of it it changes so much in terms of culture and technology and the way we live. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I mean, how much do you think this has altered us? What do you think won't go back?
2: Well, one argument that's made about the pandemic often is is that it's been a great acceleration and that it hasn't necessarily taken us places we didn't expect to go, but it's taken us there much more quickly than we anticipated. I think working from home is an obvious example. Yeah, addiction and dependency on screens and technology has amplified, but we were kind of already heading that way somewhat anyway. I think it's put health and medicine and scientific medicine right at the heart of our society. I think it was much more on the margins for a lot of young, healthy people. They weren't thinking about stuff like this. The importance of a company like Pfizer to the human race has changed dramatically. And so I think The next few decades will be much more medicalized. We will be thinking about, is there going to be another pandemic? What can we do to change that? How can we respond to that? Because we still don't really know how to respond to this. We're going through this Omicron wave and we still are having the same debates in some ways. Should we lock down? Should we not lock down? How long should we lock down for? Like, do lockdowns even work? All these sorts of things that are still unresolved. So I think we're going to be thinking about that for a long time. One point some people have made is that after 9-11 the world became kind of securitized in a way. Uh, if you think we still do all this rigmarole going through airports, all yeah. from the post 9-11 era, there's still these kind of whole network of counterterrorism think tanks and, and this whole sort of apparatus that was built after that. I think that will be true about science and medicine in the aftermath of COVID, but on a far greater scale.
1: I suppose, you know, you're right, it is an acceleration of trends that have already been started and there was already this atomization of people being online rather than out as much. But after two years of a lot of people being on their own or only communicating online, how will that change us as a society?
2: Well, I don't think it's any coincidence that the the metaverse became uh, a, a widely used phrase during the pandemic. There is this sense that, The idea of a virtual or partial virtual reality is far more accessible to a lot of people when they've spent the best part of 18 months Zooming and Slacking and whatever as a job instead of being in an office or whatever. In terms of the culture, I mean, I don't know. My hope is that we'll see a a fight back. People, again, another early pandemic cliche was, oh, well, once this is over, we'll have the roaring 20s. I think that (laughs) was pretty naive, frankly, even then.
1: Sadly, I'm still waiting.
2: I know, right? I've still got my sort of flapper dress at the dry cleaners, but, you know, it's clearly the economic effects of this are going to be prolonged and painful, even if Omicron is the last big variant. We've wrenched our society apart in all sorts of strange ways. We've talked
1: about how it's affected people's memory, how it's affected our experience of life and, and mental health, really. Are people getting worried already about the long term effects of that, of of how it'll affect our mental health in the future? Well, if they're not
2: worried, they should be. I mean, depression rates have soared, anxiety rates are through the roof. We were a generation certainly already having more mental health problems or talking about them certainly a lot more than our predecessors. That has been amplified hugely. The effects of lockdown and the anxiety and that has come with it all we'll be living with for years to come. I mean, go back to what I said earlier, I, I'm an optimist by nature and I, I don't want to be sort of apocalyptic about this, but clearly we have tested ourselves in ways that are unhappy and anxious and I guess my hope is that what we see in the years after the pandemic, whenever they are, is resilience and fortitude and, as I said, a flourishing in response to what we've seen. And that's the kind of optimist in me believes that. But clearly, I mean, you just have to look at the numbers around depression; They are really troubling. And we're in the second winter of effective restrictions and lockdowns, either by stealth or reality. This is hard.
1: And Josh, for you, writing that essay, has it changed the way you'll think back and reflect on this period. Was it quite helpful, just the act of sitting down and and thinking it through?
2: One doesn't like to sort of write too much about the pandemic at times because it can feel a bit indulgent and and we're all going through it. But I did find it quite helpful, partly to string my year together and remember all the things that had happened and partly so that you have a bit of a way of thinking about this all that isn't just kind of numb experience um, of the (laughs) day-to-day, that you have a kind of framing for it. And it's okay to forget things and to feel like it, some of it was really blank. And it's understandable that there is a sort of an anime, a lethargy, a, a sense of alienation at times. And, and that's part of the process. So I, I do think in as much as sometimes I just want to bury my head in the sand and, and rewatch Curb Enthusiasm or whatever, it is quite important to think about this in the big picture so that you understand what's happening to, to yourself and to everyone else.
1: Well, I hope that helped. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, special correspondent for The Sunday Times, Josh Glancy. You can read more of Josh's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, or the podcast in general, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Here's hoping it's a more memorable one.